0: Dr. Kim and Dr. Todd Saxton are experts in the world of startups. They have a wealth of knowledge and experience about the challenges that startups face and how to overcome them. They have written a book on startups called The Titanic Effect that uses the Titanic and a sailing metaphor to provide a roadmap for success. They take a unique approach to show what makes startups successfully navigate through the challenges of startup investing, founding and hiring. This episode, you will learn what the Titanic effect is, how to assess and manage risk in your business, as well as hear real-life examples of the effect in action.
1: So we've been working with helping start companies, helping fund companies, and working with startups for 20, 25 years. And we started to see some patterns emerge. And we were putting together a presentation about 10 years ago for a big venture community event in, in the Midwest. And we're trying to better articulate why is it that ventures fail. And it was around the time that the idea of technical debt was becoming more in vogue. So people are starting to understand, wait a second, you know, you you make decisions early on with technology, and then you're laden with that debt later on that limits your ability to grow or move in the right direction or or pivot in a new direction. And we, in our discussions between us, I I come from the strategy and entrepreneurship perspective. Kim has a lot of that as well as marketing Uh, and We're looking at this pattern of startups that we've been working with at that point for 10 plus years going, you know, it's not just technical debt. It's the people you bring on board, the advisors and investors you bring on board, the people you hire early on, hiring too many people, as you were suggesting. Uh, It's also how you choose those early customers, prospect for them, identify them, etc. How you build the technology, certainly. But then from a strategy perspective, how all of those different pieces work together, uh, because we see often these unbalanced startups where it's all about the technology and they get way down the road with the technology before talking to a customer. Uh, so our attempt was to put together a better framework to understand those interrelated decisions and and how to avoid uh, making mistakes that could end up uh, kind of sinking the ship. And maybe Kim can go from there to talk yeah. about the Titanic naming, et cetera.
2: So I think, and just to clarify that a little bit, it was more also that we were kept hearing the same things. Like the startup would say, oh no, this is a totally new product. Nobody has anything like this. You're going to be blown away at how unique it is. And then we'd be like, oh no, you've heard this before. And here's all the problems that go with unique, right? Hmm. So then we're like, instead of having to keep telling them these things over and over again, why don't we just put them in a book? But what happened is we were starting to do this presentation and we were sorting around for a title, right? You have to have a catchy title if you can have a big presentation. And and Todd said, oh, it reminds me of like an iceberg. You only see this little bit on top and there's all this crud underneath and that's where the real problem is. And he goes, oh, oh, when you think of the iceberg, you have to think of the Titanic. So let's just start talking about the Titanic. And, and I said to him. Uh, we are PhDs, we are business professors. You can't just make something up. You're going to have to go do some research and see if there's anything there. And lo and behold, he's out in the other room and I'm working away on my computer and I'm like going, you're so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) How did you know this? So everybody thinks that the Titanic sunk because it hit an iceberg. And what we learned is that was the last mistake they made. That there were a bunch of other mistakes they made that caused that hitting the the iceberg to be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And so we really like this idea of, it's not one thing that kills a startup. It's a collection of things that kill a startup. And I'll give you an example. So along the way they decided that they wanted to have super luxurious suites. And so in order to have super luxurious suites, You want an unobstructed view to get an unobstructed view. You have to take out the Mm lifeboats.
0: Do
2: you see where I'm going? Yeah. (laughs) Or because you want to have such a luxury, you needed a two story dining room. And to Mm -hmm. have a two story dining room, you have to lower the bulkheads.
0: Right. Right. So you're changing so when, the complete designs, the safety parts of the ship. You're like, right, we want this to look as good as possible. Then you look and go, hey, that, that's not safe at all. Like we're, we're actually making this a, a less safe experience. Right. Okay.
2: Right. Or even because it, there was such an engineering marvel. I mean, if you think about what had to be done in order to make that ship float and cross the Atlantic, uh, 95% of the people on the ship that were employees were engineers. Right. Only 5% were salesmen. Right. So (laughs) fine if you have engineering problems, but what about if you have a safety problem? Nobody knows what to do.
1: And Mm. and to clarify, uh, sailors trained in the sea, not salesmen as in (laughs) people who sell things. Well, I think most startups do
0: have that problem though they don't hire enough salesmen to actually sell the (laughs) (laughs) product. Exactly. I sort of thought
2: it covered, I knew it was making a word <laughs> up, but I thought, well, this one goes everywhere, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so you know, these are the problems that, that came with the Titanic is they were trying to make the product, you know, we'll, we'll call it a product for the product's sake. They're trying to make it better and more impressive and all that kind of stuff, but they ended up making it less safe. So to take it back to, you know, modern day in business, how can a startup, you know, prevent or prepare to avoid the you know the looming iceberg in the distance that could be the titanic effect
1: well and and again as kim suggested there are these interlocking things but typically some of the first steps a startup takes or a founder takes Is building the team right, and sometimes it's three people sitting around the table drawing on a napkin, and and they do. We call it the curse of thirdsies. Okay, we'll each take a third, and then we'll be billionaires, you know, like uh, all the those unicorns you read about on Wall Street. Well, six months later, one person's family uh, obligations get in the way, and you know, and Jim has to go work uh, in a different office for a week. So, you know, Janet is is left holding the bag on moving the venture forward, and the other two co-founders. Are kind of silent observers at best. So the idea early on of making sure you're building your management team so that you have appropriate diversity of perspective and experience, et cetera. But also don't allocate all the equity upfront. You want to make sure you vest it over time, et cetera. Um, so there, there are a lot of parallels. Uh, and, and I mentioned before choosing your investor. Well, when the White Star line, which built and operated the Titanic, Uh, prior to building the Titanic was running out of funds, they brought on a new investor. Guess what? That new investor insisted that the company use their nephew's shipyard to build the next fleet of ships, including the Titanic. So you had this change in strategy and you also had a change in in builder and key relationships by bringing on an investor. So those are a couple of the, the parallels that that, that we see in the human ocean, and maybe Kim can talk a little more eloquently about the marketing and, and customer choices.
2: Well, I think what I was gonna more suggest is that the issue is that, the way we like to think about startups is that you're kind of cro- growing across four domains and you kind of have to grow across these four domains simultaneously. You have your product, you have your customers, you have your employees, and you have your investors. And often we see startups get kind of wobbly. You know, so you can take something like a really dramatic example, like Theranos, which sold a product they didn't have, right? Right. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of startups who are out selling something they can't deliver. Mm. Or, you know, we see sometimes companies that put everything into product and they just keep evolving and making the product beautiful, thinking that that will get them to product market fit. But actually, you need to have customers involved so if you're equally building the product and selling it, then you can do that. So you could have a beautiful product that nobody can figure out how to access. So those are like the two most unwobbly things we see. And a third one that frequently happens is startups get a big inflection of cash and they just actually don't know what to do with it. So they just start burning it. I mean, almost literally, right? And then they run out of cash, Right. So it's this unwieldy bit of not expanding equally across those four domains that cause a lot of the problems.
0: Right. And are there any like sectors of the startup industry that are most affected by this? Because you mentioned, you know, venture capital funded people, people with too much money. So that kind of leads me towards the idea of tech companies having these types of issues. Or is, have you found there's other sectors that have this kind of issue with the Titanic effect?
1: Uh, Even product companies, so a a beverage company we're familiar with brought on uh, some early investors, for example, and one of their clauses in the early investment was that in the subsequent round of investment, they would get bought out at a two times return. Well, investors in their early stages aren't going to come in and spend their money buying out at a premium the, the prior investors, right? So the startup was unable to go and raise additional funds and ended up crashing and burning as as a result. So uh, that's that's one example of more a product related uh, company that still faced some of the same kinds of issues.
2: Or I've seen some things where, say, a company needs a salesperson and they can't really afford to pay them, so they give up ten percent equity. To bring a salesperson on to come help develop a sales process. Well, 10% equity is a really big piece. Mm. One of my other favorite stories is someone who was going to be the lead and then decided to bring on a couple other people to help. They were putting up all the money, but because these people are going to be working so hard, they gave each of them 30% equity.
0: Right.
2: So add 30 and 30
0: yeah, there's well, it's either there's not enough or there's too much equity going around. I'm I'm a bit confused.
2: Right. That's both, right? And so right. and but in this case, if you give away sixty percent of your company, then they can outvote you.
0: Right, of course. Yeah. So you've you've given away a controlling stake in your company for you know money that, you know, it's risky it's your baby, but now you aren't in control of it at all.
2: Right. And I mean I, we've seen several instances where someone was a co-founder. And the other two partners decided, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, we want to replace you.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And so we end up having then, to then-
0: to buy them out type thing.
2: Right. And sometimes, you know, push them out and yeah. And sometimes if you really were excited about doing it and you get pushed out, you know, there's a lot of hard feelings.
0: Yeah. So are you coming into people's startups and kind of making them prepare for something that they realistically are not thinking about so that they're prepared for this, you know, rare, almost uncertain thing that could happen. It's like, well, it, it does happen, and it happens a lot more often than you think, especially when you're not prepared for it mentally or, ha- or have had those kind of conversations.
1: Well, we, we do find, particularly early on, our most eager audience were were founders who had been through the process, and they were like, "Where were you three years ago?" <laughs> well, not exactly an <laughs> accusation, but but we had a lot of those kind of, kind of conversations. It's been rewarding over the past couple of years because an increasing percent of the people we talk to are, okay. so I'm uh, we're now at the point of building the team and we're raising our second round. And I see that we don't have the appropriate diversity or or, uh, advisors or whatever, and I'm trying to figure out how to translate the concepts in the book to to our particular circumstances. Um, And and that's a nice conversation, right? Because it's the pre-mortem; You're getting a little bit ahead of it. um, And we're helping some founders ask questions that they should be asking earlier, but you have to be at the right phase in that journey. If if you have a new, a a new founder, particularly a first time founder and you throw all these things, well, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this or your ship's going to sink. They're going to be like, ah, right away screaming. Right. Um, So, I, again, I think the idea of hitting them at the, the right time uh, can, can make a, a big difference. But also, when they've started to run into some of those icebergs, they see them in the water, um, as opposed to, okay, you're about to launch a ship and you're going to get into an ocean and they're going to be icebergs. That's at a, a a conceptual level that a lot of startups or founders aren't, aren't quite ready for.
2: Yeah, a more typical conversation I would say that we have these days in, and frequently have with startups is oh my gosh, we have such a great idea. And so we right. ask, oh, well, who's your ideal customer? Everybody in the market needs this.
0: <laughs> That's the worst thing you can say.
2: Right. <laughs> so they have to do the hard swallow and say like, okay, but you can't talk to everyone. So we need to narrow down to who's, you know, the most ideal I just did a workshop last week with some small businesses. So these are companies here in the Indianapolis area and, um, you know, they're in a business coaching kind of peer group and they're relatively successful. They're growing and all that. And i and again, I'm like, well, we have to focus like who's the most ideal. Can you describe them? We call those segments. All right. Here's different ways to segment. And then well, you can add segments together over time as you perfect this and move on to that. Um, but sometimes being a startup means having discipline and, and that's kind of hard to hear. But if you did a really good job, then 80% of your ideal customers should buy you, right? So then, okay, how do we make 80% aware? I mean, that's now potentially something that you can afford, right? So it gets back to affordability. And so that's where I think often people kind of like some of the content because it, it could be venture funded. It doesn't have to be venture funded. It could be a small business. It's people who are trying to grow and scale their business and thinking about what's the best way to do this in a logical path so that I have an efficient use of money. I am making progress and I can afford the progress I'm making.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Because I, I feel like when people are developing startups, it's like it's like you said, people go, oh, this product is for everybody. Everybody should buy it. But if you have one person in mind and you go, right, I'm making this for Jimmy. When Jimmy sees this, Jimmy's going to go, oh my gosh, this product is made for me. I have to buy it now. And he looks at the price and he goes, oh, that's a bit more expensive than I thought you've really hit a problem where, you know, you've got the right person, not at the right price. Okay, maybe play around with price now. And let's say Jimmy buys, but you know your product is a consumable product. Why is Jimmy not back to buy again? Okay, look at these things. And I think a lot of people when they start startups, you know, it's, it's scary to start a business, but it's like you said, if you're logical, You can start a business that, you know, doesn't make money from day one, but makes money from the first few sales and and, kind of keeps you going. So you said you do this for small businesses. In my head, I always, when you, well, I say always, in my head, when you mentioned, you know, venture capital, I thought, right, they're doing it with the big tech companies of the world. But the fact you're doing it with the smaller startups, I think that's actually a much more sustainable business model because most VC funded companies like you said they want to just get to the next funding round to buy out so and so to pay off this to pay off that you know there's some companies that have gone through the whole alphabet of funding and now they're on seed round double a or a b and i'm thinking is that allowed how many funding rounds do you need <laughs> well are it's the- kind of
1: like hurricanes <laughs> if you get through the whole alphabet it's been a bad season right <laughs>
2: or what then you're seeing is these uh you know devaluation where they're devaluing their own <laughs> capitalization I'm like oh okay so you took a billion dollars but now you're only worth a billion dollars how how does that really work I don't know no we work with a lot of you know younger startups smaller startups college students who are looking at their businesses um and uh, i mean we had someone email us through the website and was like oh, hey, I've been using your book to run my business and now I want you to come to my advisory board meeting. (laughs) We're like, happy to do it. Happy to teach your advisors the way to look at this business.
1: But I think you raise a a really important point, Sam, which is even angel funding, let alone moving to venture capital, is only appropriate for a small percent of startups. Hmm. If you can fund, for example, if you're a more service-related business and you can fund... The next set of employees by going out and selling one more project, if you're used to selling customers and you can sell that project, that's going to be a way more efficient use of your time to bring in capital and to grow the business than going outside and trying to raise venture capital. And and I think there is this kind of predisposition that that the media and, and others have have put in the head of the would-be entrepreneur, that you're only successful when you go raise a million dollars or go get venture capital. Um, and, and that's one of the first questions we encourage founders that we talk to and, and our students, as Kim was saying, to think through is, is that what you really want? Because once you raise that kind of money, you are locked into a, a channel and set of decisions uh, in terms of the amount of growth you're you're expected to manage uh number of people etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and and that isn't appropriate for every business and particularly for every kind of founder mm.
0: yeah because you, you've mentioned that you know the the three things I've heard so far is that you have to make sure you're taking the right sources of funding or having a sustainable source of funding. You've got to build the right team. And as well as that, you've got to think of what your ideal customer is. What are the other kind of root causes that can, you know, lead us to hit these type of icebergs?
2: Well, so then we talked a little bit about this being unique thing. And so, you know, Yes, you want something that's innovative and novel and useful, right? So meeting an unmet need in the marketplace is the number one predictor of success for startups and for new products, right? People don't go and change their behavior and buy stuff they don't need, right? So we have to figure out what those unmet needs are. And there's plenty of times we've seen alternatives that people come up with, and it's just like, it's not compelling. Um, In our own research, which we uh, have been doing research with, People who are are pitching uh, over the last 15 years, and it you know it turns out that if if people don't really believe that your product has an unmet need in the marketplace, then they they figure that out pretty quickly, and that Im- immediate perception impacts your long term survival. So that is really critical. It's like just don't build something to build something, build something that people need. Um, But then the second one is, so especially startups, there's a whole concept out there you may have heard of the blue ocean strategy, which is don't go to places where people are, go out there and create your own category and, and do all that work. Well, that's great if you're a big company with a lot of money, right? But when you're a small company and just getting started, you have to be in a category that people know and be able to say how you are better. And the classic example I give is FedEx. When FedEx was created, there was just mail, right? So if they said, oh, we're your first overnight delivery service, people would be like, what's an overnight delivery service? I never heard of it. But what they said is we're mail that gets there tomorrow. That was unheard of, right? Yeah. Sometimes you need your mail to be someplace, and so they did really well. Of course, they've adjusted be- over the time in different ways. But I mean, that's the key is do be in a category that people know really well, but be able to say what is so compelling about you that they have to go get it immediately.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Todd? Or has Kim kind of stole your whole thunder on that? Because that
1: was such an amazing point. There, there's always more, right? There's always the different <laughs> ways. So. We've talked a lot about focus in that first uh, set of customers that you work with and getting product market fit. Um, and then there's a subsequent round and and I think part of the theme of the Titanic and part of our discussion is that there's never that moment where, okay, I've made my last decision now we just hit the gas and and grow, right? because the the uncertainty, uh, that that startups navigate just keeps getting more and more complex. When do we take on money? How do we use that money, et cetera? So getting beyond that first decision of who are our first customers, who, who are those 80%, right? That niche that we're the exact right for. Well, first of all, that means getting to the point where you can say no to somebody. And that is so hard for entrepreneurs to do, right? It's like, it's so used to saying, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. That first time you say, Jimmy's right for us, but alice is is just not, and we're going to say no um That's a huge hurdle but but it should be viewed as a badge of honor an accomplishment to be able to recognize uh, and articulate that uh, but then also that that second part of the mentality is once you get some momentum, you don't go from being laser focused to being in the middle of an ocean, trying to do everything. you have to continue to systematically experiment as to where that next round of growth is going to come from. Is it going to be an additional product or tweak on the existing products and selling additional services to our existing customers and people like them? Or do we kind of package what we have and then start to take it to new markets, whether that's geographic markets, new kinds of market segments or, or market needs? And that should be a deliberate uh, and, and experiment-driven uh, kind of approach to how the startup grows from there, uh, and and we do see that early success lead to that. Let's go raise a lot of money, and now we can do everything for everybody, um, and and that's kind of that next wave that that can uh, hit you and, and sink you in in some circumstances.
0: Yeah, a lot of companies have scaled up way too fast and, you know, run out of money. And I like the example that Kim gave there of FedEx that, you know, they they had an offering to the market that was, you know, amazing and valuable. But if they didn't get the tagline right, no one understood what it was. So I'm wondering if you have any examples or any kind of things that come to mind of times where companies have scaled up and it's been, you know, a great success and times where companies scaled up and been, you know, not such a great success, whether that's current or in the past. I'm just curious, because you guys have analyzed so
1: many different businesses, I'm sure. Yeah, there have been some great examples over time, including more recently, WeWork, for example, um, uh, Kim mentioned Theranos, uh, going back, what was the... um, grocery delivery company back in the around 2000, 2001 web, web fan. Or, uh,
2: yeah. What was that but,
1: one? Uh, so uh, you can look back yeah. and see these companies that have kind of the core of what becomes a really interesting idea. Um, and certainly grocery delivery, for example, is, has taken off and been uh, incredibly successful in the last few years. Um, I
2: feel like it was Peapod.
1: No, 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 I think it was Webvan. But was anyway. anyway, the <laughs> was idea
2: like... with Webvan, that was so interesting because it was a little bit before its time, right yeah. before people were really ready for the grocery store to deliver. Yeah. But also they built their own facilities so that they right. could more easily manage the orders. Well, wow. shoot, that's a huge investment in capital. Yeah. That's all tied up in the distribution system you know, versus Instacart really nailed it because they they gave shoppers maps of the stores and said, here's how you get through the store the fastest, Yeah. right? So yeah. understanding like, what is the piece we need to do really well and what is the piece that we can borrow from others is, I think, an important part about scaling up. I mean, I think another really good one is, you know, Run the Run- Runway. They are like the largest dry cleaner in the world because right. they have such a volume. They had to be in dry cleaning. Okay, so they did that. So now if you were going to go into that kind of a market and just do kids stuff, should you be a dry cleaner too? Or should you work a wholesale dry cleaning deal, right? right. It's like thinking again about... What are the things that are so important to our success that we have to invest in building them versus being very clear about what tools we can use from somewhere else and looking for a better price point on those tools?
0: Yeah. A lot of people try to build the whole machine when realistically they would want to build a cog in the machine and hope that someone else with a broken cog in their machine wants to slot their bit in there. Like Amazon do that all the time. Amazon go, we want to get into grocery delivery. Right. We're not going to build a grocery store, even though they have now, but they went and bought, um, was it Whole Foods, whole Foods and whole yeah, Foods. and all that kind of stuff. So they kind of just absorbed up a company. But I think if you're starting from zero, you know, Amazon started with just books and as right. they built out, they built out however they did. But I think now the problem is a lot of people see the big companies, they see the, you know, meta now, but Facebook back in the day, they see Amazon, they see Microsoft, Apple, and they go, Oh, I want to do it all. And it's like, they all started off with one thing that was doing one small thing better. So I'm curious, you go, you know, into startups and you help startups, you help small businesses. Have you ever helped businesses when it comes to acquisitions or, you know, being acquired or doing acquisitions? Is that something that you guys have dabbled in a bit? Uh,
2: that's that's a funny question. Since that was his first job, and has that's, oh, that's
1: where we met and where we started. So uh, we were with a small boutique consulting firm in the DC area, mm. uh, and and I the group I was working with in the same consulting firm as Kim uh, did acquisition and alliance analysis and due diligence. Uh, for Fortune 500 kinds of companies, so finding the right kind of targets, evaluating them, trying to approach and help structure a deal—those uh, were the kinds of things that we did. Interestingly, it was that experience where we were our clients were the big companies. But what was so cool that we saw was, to me, the interesting story was the typically smaller companies, small to mid-sized, five to fifty million in revenue. On the other side of the deal, and what they cared about, what was important to them, um, you know. For example, just a, a brief diversion, but you know, there was one owner who was, you know, willing to sell the company, happy to sell the company, but he wanted a job guaranteed for every employee in the organization after right. that sale because he had heard too many horror stories, and and that was the condition. That was the the make or break of that transaction, not the right. price, not, not how much money he individually was going to take, uh, not how much money or, or time he was going to re- continue to serve the organization, but it was the employees. And to me, that was a an interesting and refreshing perspective on the different facets of business and what's important. And as a privately held company, and particularly as a startup, you can build your own value system and build that value system uh, into the organization. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to the the acquisition alliance story. Uh, but but similarly, Kim worked in the um, competitive analysis and, and marketing side, uh, which I think complements a, a lot of these other issues that we're talking about.
2: Yeah. So big companies are asking the kind of questions you just asked. All the time. I mean, we, I did one big program for somebody who was trying to build a national medical supply distribution business. Right. Well, why would you build that when you there are already you know two dozen existing? So then our task was how do we identify the best ones to connect up a nationwide circuit, and which of those can we actually buy, you know, or a chocolate company that wanted to get into uh, premium ice creams. Well, yeah, there's premium ice cream stores in every major city in America. And some of those have one and some have a dozen. And so why would you, again, want to build everything? Uh, More recently, I think it's been interesting to watch, um, you know, Tide and Mr. Clean. Uh, So P&G, you know, bought a bunch of car washes under Mr. Clean. Right. And a bunch of dry cleaners under Tide, right? So yeah. Um, Now, they had a lot of resources. So partly sometimes you have to think, as a startup, what can I build that'll be attractive to somebody else? But we always tell people, don't start your startup because you want to be famous or a billionaire or because you want to get bought by somebody. Start your startup because it makes you feel good getting up every morning, dealing with a thousand fires.
1: Yeah. Coming back to the title of, of your podcast, people explained it was intriguing to us as we were talking through oh I wonder what we're going to talk about what might some of the themes be and and one that we talked about is when you try and explain what an entrepreneur is there's no one uh, there are caricatures certainly but there's no one kind of entrepreneur uh, and the motivations can vary widely and uh, again Kim and I are are pretty quick to discourage those who Either A, want to do it so they no longer have to work for the man, uh, as if, oh, I'll be making all my own decisions, I'll have all the freedom. Well, that isn't typically the case of the entrepreneur, right? You you become beholden to a different set of stakeholders, investors, your first employees. How do you think it's going to feel if you bring people on and hire and then the company stumbles and you have to lay them off? Man, that's tough. Yeah. Um, so, again, this idea that that you – kind of can isolate yourself and, you know, not report to anybody and that that's, you know, wonderfully freeing. There is some element of that in terms of how you spend your time and focus, but you do take on other obligations. Uh, And then the other is to make a lot of money, right? It's, I've got to find the right product so I can go make make a bunch of money. Um, There are better ways or at least different ways uh, to do that. But if you have a problem that you're passionate about solving, let's figure out, how to make that happen and then build a sustainable business around doing that, whatever that looks like from a funding and and growth perspective. Yeah. And your, your, you know, successful
0: case studies, your successful people you've worked with, what are the kind of values that you saw in these people or in these teams? What, what is, what, what is it that made them able to take your feedback, take your advice and, you know, implement and be successful?
1: Well, I'll refer to one, which is what we call our two coffee rule, which is, you know, we're university employees. We're, we're state employees. We're ser- public servants, uh, to, to a degree. And we're happy to meet with anybody, but we want to hear what they, we, they've done with that before we continue to meet and continue to invest our time and energy, uh, into those organizations. So coachability. Just being able to listen and then come back and say, hey, uh, you know, I did this and and it worked or I did this and it didn't work. The fact that they actually listen to us and, and can can share back what they experienced and whether it helped or not is helpful to us, certainly. But it also shows that they're listening. Whereas if we get that, you know, third, fourth meeting request uh, and and they haven't acted on anything that we suggested, they haven't followed up with connections we've made, et cetera, um, that makes us. Less enthusiastic.
2: Yeah, I think we uh, we really get excited about people who are trying to solve a real problem, a problem that you know in part aligns with our values too. So mm-hmm. I I love one of uh, one of the businesses we've been working with. So they started out you know cleaning hospitals, and then they see like all this furniture gets thrown away. So like okay, we should start repairing furniture. And then it further goes on. Wait, they don't even know what furniture they have. So they start a furniture inventory and um, refurbish with an online catalog, right? Mm-hmm. And so now we're keeping things out of the landfills, we're reducing costs on what you could argue is dumb stuff in an important um, you know, industry, healthcare, and they're making organizations more effective. You know, like we love to see all of those kinds of things and and without really working very hard You know, they built a multi million dollar business and said, you know, maybe do we have something here we should try to scale up? Um, You know, those are the kinds of examples that like we really love to see and that we kind of get ourselves excited about helping.
0: Hmm. Todd, Todd, like tried to, you know, explain that people explain is you know, so many different things and that's completely true. And it's I I had a thought myself. I was like, the Titanic effect. Surely it it can relate more to that, like more. You know, broadly to your life. So I'm wondering, how can we take these kind of critical thinking decisions and apply them to our lives? It's like, okay, let's say the team is our family, the funding is where we put our life energy and all that kind of stuff. I wonder if you ever thought in that way or if you yourselves apply the Titanic effect to your lives.
1: Um So I, I think a core kind of piece of what we're talking about involves trade-offs, right? And trade-offs in terms of who you, who, and when you hire people, how you raise money, what customer segments you go after. There is no right or wrong decision necessarily, uh, but there are trade-offs involved in each of those decisions. And one of the the challenges that we find with people making career changes, for example, is that they, they are not willing to think in terms of trade-offs. It's kind of like, this is what I want and I'm gonna go do it. And you have to step back and say, okay, but there are potentially there's collateral damage. Right. And it could be your relationships, your loved ones. Uh, it could be other choices that you're able to make in terms of your time and energy and health and uh, th- those those kinds of elements. So we do, I think, and help keep each other in check and balance on recognizing the kind of trade offs we make an in individual, whether it's personal or professional decisions. And I think that's a very consistent uh, theme that that resonates and and extends into the Titanic effect in the oceans that we talk about.
2: Well, it probably won't surprise you that one of the other kind of workshops I do are, is around personal branding. So, I for me that works a little better for the personal side. And and actually, how to leverage your personal brand to think about a career plan. And and that's as Todd said, it's like yeah, you could do anything, but you know what do you love? What would you do on Saturday at 8 a.m.? What would you do? What do you do when you're not paid and nobody's looking, Mm. you know, what are you good at? You know, what does the world need from you? What can you get paid for? You start to take all those things into consideration and, and each individual choice you might make, how does it fit with that? Again, what trade-offs are you making? I often think of trade-offs in terms of not just the type of work, but, Um, How demanding is the work? How hard are you going to work? How much are you going to have to travel? You know, what else is going on in your life? How does this fit? Um, And so I think we both do a good bit of mentoring and coaching of people trying to work through some of those. I mean, we naturally inherit students, so it's easy to have people to mentor. Um, But those are the kinds of conversations that we end up having.
0: Yeah, and you've briefly briefly touched on this. You both work in a university. You are both doctors of business. So is this where you tend to kind of not nip it in the bud of people, but catch them before they make these horrendous decisions? Are they coming to you and be like, "Right, I'm going to speak to the the, the family of Saxtons
1: and get the the best business business advice that I can get." Well, it's so the interesting thing is because of the nature of the programs we teach in, we are covering everything from undergraduates. Uh, in their, you know, 20, early 20s uh, in our graduate programs where our average students are are working professionals. So it's an evening MBA program. Average age is maybe 29, 30. uh, But then also we teach in healthcare related programs, one of which is a physician program. The average age is 45, 46. Um, So we do see these patterns (laughs) that are consistent across those populations, but uh, an increasing number, the older they get of people who have already made some of the mistakes or uh, are coming back for more education because they weren't able to nip those things in the bud. And, and now they're coming back to say, um, yikes, made some mistakes that maybe maybe a little education would actually help. Um, and, and we we really love the whole gamut of the types of students that we're able to work with and the kind of problems that they're interested in solving.
2: I don't really think of it as nipping in the bud. I think of those kind of relationships as, you know, in part being a mirror. So I like to listen. And and if if you need me to help you nip it in the bud, <laughs> then I, yes, I can be your foil. I can be mom. I can be the professor said, that's fine. But often it's a it's more interactive. It's more about, well, what did you really like about this? Okay. Well, what else could you do that would be like this? Well, all right. So you're in this situation and you're not loving this part of it. How can you rework that part of it so that you get the part that you really do love? Um, So we're just really lucky. We get to work with so many people and see so many different motivations. I mean, sometimes they bring things to us and we're like, oh, I wouldn't want to do that at all. Right. Yeah. (laughs) They want to do it. (laughs) So that's fine.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So kind of bringing it all together you know you've got risk management you've got decision making you know those two kind of pillars that you're trying to you know stay between of you know making a decision that's not too risky and taking a risk that doesn't you know lead to bad decisions and etc etc you can go on forever you know mixing the two together how do you guys kind of see the future of of risk management being and decision making and the titanic effect as you know Teams become inevitably smaller as AI takes over and, you know, a person that used to schedule your emails and take care of your calendar is now just a a line of code. How do you see the Titanic effect kind of, you know, evolving, should we say, from, you know, teams and values to, you know, procedures, processes and maybe tech stacks and things like that? Uh, well, you just
2: opened a door that he's <laughs> definitely going to walk through and it's not <laughs> going to be just about risk, but I'm going to let him take it.
1: So you, you use the term <laughs> risk uh, several times there in, in kind of queuing this up. Um, and that is how we very frequently kind of refer to what entrepreneurs do. Um, But one of our, uh, you know, kind of themes is there's a big difference between risk and uncertainty. Mm. Uh, And and I'll use kind of academic language initially risk is, is probabilistic, right? So you can have odds. It's like games of, of dice. Uh, or cards where there's a distribution of outcomes, and you know the probability of different outcomes, and you know it's more likely that you're going to roll a seven than than a twelve or a two, um, and you make bets accordingly. Um, the startup, on the other hand, is is fraught with uncertainty across all of these different dimensions, and there's no way to assign probabilities of different kinds of outcomes other than we're going to crash and burn, or we're going to be wildly successful, and it's probably somewhere in between. So part of what we try to do as professors with all the students we work with, but, but other folks that we kind of counsel is to arm them with the tools so that when they face that uncertainty, they have some tools and techniques to fall back on and some training instead of what typically uncertainty triggers, which is the part of your brain that's fight or flight. And it's like, all right, either I'm going to get angry and, and adversarial or I'm going to run away. You don't want either of those things if, if you're navigating uncertainty and innovation or, or entrepreneurship. So part of what we try to do is is to build that toolkit so that as you face that, that succession of decisions under uncertainty, you feel comfortable with it and, and you don't feel a need to run away. I'm so Andrew, glad I asked that question. Funny. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Kim, well, you the any saying.
2: Alternatives, right? That's part of uncertainty is all right, well, let's lay out all the alternatives we know so far and let's see what we can do with them.
1: Yeah. But, you know, there's another, and, and this is a really interesting thread to me when you talk about the emerging tech stack and where that's leading with AI, et cetera, which is at some point, yes, it's going to kind of disaggregate, move towards smaller teams and, and potentially smaller companies. But if you think about what the internet was designed to do, uh, and the hopes of the internet was to democratize everything, right? So you you take the middle person out of it, and the individual artist, whether that's an author, a singer, uh, a creator uh, of other creative works, or a professor or, or someone delivering knowledge, et cetera. And you, you kind of take the, the middle company out of it so that you can directly access those customers you care about, those people that you want to help. And the Internet could be a forum for that. And has that been realized? Yes, to some degree. But it's also aggregated wealth and business power in the hands of a few very large organizations. Um, So unfortunately, it hasn't had that um, completely democratizing markets effect that even some of the early designers and, and contributors to the internet had hoped it might be social media, similar kind of thing, right? That you would hope that people being able to converse with, with others, regardless of background, geography, uh, and share thoughts, etc., that that would make everybody have more of a global perspective or happier and maybe yeah. happier, man, it has that like gone in that direction. Sadly, I, we don't think so. Um, so I, I just think we have to be careful about how we integrate these technologies and the hopes and dreams of what it might enable, but also recognize there are elements to this that can lead to, you know, for example, the use of AI um, in aided decision making for healthcare and others. If that just kind of legitimizes or embeds biases that people already have and exacerbates health inequities. Uh, food inequities, et cetera, th- then those tools, which have so much promise are being used in the wrong way. So I, I and I'm not saying there has to be, you know, an AI police or, or something. I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I, I do, I have uh, probably, you can hear it in my voice, just fundamental <laughs> and and passionate concerns uh, about making sure those, those uh, potential technolo- technologies realize what they can do for humanity uh, and, and not exacerbate things that are already challenges. Nice.
0: Nice. Well, Todd, you were really passionate about that, and
1: Kim is really passionate about the,
0: the whole kind of, you know, the, the whole kind of cookie that is the Titanic effect. And so I wanted to ask you both this question. This is a question I ask every guest, but every answer is different. You guys say that people should work in startups that are, you know, exciting to them, and they would do it even if they weren't getting paid and all that kind of stuff. But what I'd like to ask you both is, what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy?
2: That's like really easy for me. And, and I do want to circle back because I have a slightly different answer than his on the AI at some point, maybe. Um, which is we love to see people excel. So it's to the extent, you know, a lot of times my students, particularly undergrads come into class, they're like, oh, we're going to have a boring lecture, blah, 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 blah. No, no, that is not what the purpose of my class is. My class is to stretch you. Yes, I am going to push you. You're at times going to be like, oh, well, she's pushing us too hard. Good, because you don't even know what you're capable of. And so I want to arm you to be the most capable that you can. And then I am going to applaud you and be excited when you come back and tell me that you did something you never thought you could. And all my students who do that, and it's a lot... (laughs) I just am on the sidelines going, yes, and that is my day when they say I did this because you showed me how or you encouraged me, then I just think that that is why I was put on this earth, to help people accomplish things that they don't think they're capable of.
1: My answer is even more simple. The most rewarding thing is I get to work shoulder to shoulder with Kim, my (laughs) wife and partner. (laughs) No, but seriously. And that is that is true and very worrying part. But um, and and this, I think, is closely related, perhaps not surprisingly, to what uh, Kim was talking about, that um, innovation is hard. And, And when you talk about entrepreneurs starting up the de novo business and, you know, that's hard, but there are people looking to change. Practices within their organizations looking to do a better job at building new products or services or better ways to serve existing customers. Um, and, and that kind of innovation, whether it's in the new the new startup or a or different context, is just really tough. But there are a lot of people who are very passionate about what they're the problem they're trying to solve. And if I can be part of helping them achieve their goals and objectives and and get closer, I, I think it's helpful to them, but it's also helpful to their communities and and everybody else that that we work with. Um, and to help enable that uh, that kind of change is is uh, very rewarding to to me and. Would I do it for free? Well, we actually do it a lot for free, <laughs> but it's fortunate that, you know, as professors, we, we certainly make enough to keep the lights on and, and are able to make those kind of choices as, as to uh, how we engage. Lovely.
0: And Kim, you said you wanted to add something in about the AI thing. Go on, fire away.
2: All right. So I, I think is I really important. I mean, I went to MIT as an undergrad, so I'm a big believer in computers and what can happen. And there's just like so many tedious tasks that human beings should not be doing, that somebody should be doing to help us. And the more we can get the tedious tasks away so that we are freed up to do the more important strategic thinking, I'm all for it. But I think what we're going to find over time is that the importance of service. And I was just texting with an entrepreneur this morning, who is all excited about a product, product, product. And they're innately, they're helping people build products. So they're providing a big service. And and this person was like, well, if we productize this piece, it'd be a lot easier for us. And I was like, but if you productize this piece, does anyone want to do it themselves? Yeah. Or do they really want the services? Because if they want the services, then what you really need to do is think about how do you optimize the services So like I said, like the dumb stuff that nobody needs to do is automated and doesn't take man hours so that we can keep people doing the important stuff about how I think healthcare, the caring is really important. Getting to a diagnosis is an important part of getting to caring, but getting to caring and helping people feel better. That's where we need the people to be. So I think we're going to think smarter about what do people need to do versus what do computers need to do.
0: Where can the people find you online?
2: Well, the easiest place is at our website for the book, the titanic effect.com. And then we're also at Indiana University. So there are only two Saxton, S-A-X-T-O-N professors. So go to Indiana University and look for Saxton. You'll find us.
1: And please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Love to interact. If you have questions, concerns, want to poke holes in something we said, uh, we'd love to, to hear from any of you.
0: Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.